On this week's episode, New York City gets set to open indoor dining. I make a case that America has always loved trolls. And Morning Brew's Kinsey Grant joins me to break down the great GameStop caper. That's a tease. And this is Mike Coscarelli Rules. He is so cute. (laughs) Mike Coscarelli. Mike Coscarelli. (laughs) Mike Coscarelli is here as well. He's the producer for this failing fucking radio show. A big hand for Mike something Italian. Hey, folks, how you doing? It's me, failed comedian Mike Coscarelli. So glad that you can join me here for episode five. We're really rolling now. Five episodes. My goodness. We have a great show today. This one was a lot of fun. There was a lot of crazy stuff that happened this week, and it was fun to talk about. My guest later on in the episode is Kinsey Grant of the Morning Brew newsletter. She hosts the Business Casual podcast. She is phenomenal. I mean, she knows so much about money and the financial sector and the business world. It's really insane. So she helps me break down um, what happened uh, with these GameStop stocks uh, last week. And, you know, as the story continues to unfold, she says that she thinks that this is something that could be the story of, you know, the first quarter of the year. Uh, and after listening to her talk about it, I I think she is a hundred percent right. I had no real idea. I don't want to say that I had no idea uh, what was going on. I was reading about it in the newspapers and I was trying to keep up with it. But if you don't know a lot about money, you don't necessarily fully understand what the deal is. Before we get to that, I wanted to talk to you guys for a couple quick minutes. I'm not going to waste too much of your time here because we got a lot of show to get to. Listen, out here in Brooklyn, the Mauser Street Boys, we beat COVID. Kyle is nice and healthy. Shout out to Kyle. I know you listen to the podcast. Appreciate it. Kyle's nice and healthy. Everybody's tested negative. It's all good. So we survived. And we tested negative just in time for two feet of snow here in New York City. I think it's still snowing right now as I record this intro. It's been insane. I, I don't I haven't seen this much snow on the ground in New York City in quite some time. This is quickly becoming one of the worst winters we've had in a long time. Uh it's also amplified by the fact that we are stuck in the house and can't leave really at all. So now we really can't leave. We spent two weeks laying low and you know, sitting in our rooms with our doors locked. Um and now we just can't go anywhere. Chris and I tried to get to the deli. We couldn't get over the mounds of snow. Um, so we turned back and, and went home. It's that bad. But this is very fitting of my life. It's it's This is just another shining example of the Coscarelli curse in full effect. If you're unfamiliar with the Coscarelli curse, um, the Coscarelli curse is, for me, a lifetime string of bad luck that just never seems to stop. It started from, I don't want to say birth, because I can't really remember that far back, but the Coscarelli curse, it absolutely exists. Um, Anything that can go wrong will go wrong, so just expect it. Expect the worst, because the best is will never show up at your doorstep, and that's usually the story with me. I don't know if you guys know, if you you are not familiar with me at this point, I have a major fear of flying. I can't do it. So a couple years ago, I went... um, after I had to fly somewhere to work, I had to fly to Dallas to do a live. We were doing a U Up show live in Dallas when I was still working for Le Betches. And um, we were flying down to Dallas. I was afraid to go, but I saw it as my duty as the, the producer of the show to get down there and, and be a part of the live experience for the listeners. It's my duty. And of course, everybody talked me into it. They're like, it's fine. Planes, they don't crash. No, there's nothing to worry about. Don't worry about it. You'll be fine. 
So we fly down to Dallas. And on the way down, it's all good. I managed to entertain myself. No freakouts. I'm on the plane. I made it. Dallas, Texas. Spent a nice couple days there. Do a, a very nice show. And then, and then, of course, on the way back, fifth time in my life where I've been on a plane, we make an emergency landing. An emergency landing in Richmond, Virginia. Because the plane was running out of fuel. Huh. Never any problems when you're flying a commercial airliner, right? That's what everybody says. Don't worry about it, Mike. It's going to be all good. Coscarelli curse strikes again. How about last year? New Year's Eve. I broke my foot playing basketball right before the holidays. I think we've discussed it on this show a little bit. Broke my foot. Was laid up. This is pre-2020. This is going into 2020. I call for the elevator because I can't get down the stairs. I have a broken foot. I was in an elevator building. New Year's Eve, this is the first time in a couple weeks that I'm going to try to go out and hang out with my friends. I was going to go down to the West Village in New York City. Elevator shows up. Door opens a crack and stops. That's it. Elevator out of commission. Can't get in, can't get downstairs. So I spent New Year's 2020 alone in my apartment with a broken foot, drunk, very drunk. Um, that should have been the ultimate precursor going into 2020 that this was going to be a horrible nightmare year. But hey, what are you going to do? So this is in line with every other aspect of the Coscarelli curse. There's a million examples of these, but I don't have enough time to, to waste telling you guys about all this stuff. Just take my word for it. We're, we're cursed people. The one good thing that I did see this week, though, in my opinion, at least, was that Governor Andrew Cuomo has decided now to open indoor dining in New York City. Now, it is interesting to me that I think being pro opening the restaurants in New York City is a controversial opinion. I can't even really say that people are wrong. If people feel that it's a bad move, I don't have much of an argument because at this point, I could be swayed in either direction from a scientific standpoint. I'm sure the numbers, you can find numbers that support that it's a bad move. You can theorize that one of the reasons that we are starting to finally, finally sort of tick down a little bit, at least in New York City, is because we haven't been going to bars or restaurants or any of that stuff. And I'm sure you can make a great argument. I can't really deny that. Um, however, I, I don't know. I, I, I personally feel like it's time for some kind of normalcy to start up again. We're starting to get vaccinated. I think COVID is here to stay. I don't think that this is something that we're just going to eradicate. That that's clear um, as the, the new strains of, of COVID come out. I kind of feel like we have to figure out a way to live with the virus in a, in a weird way. We're coming up on a year already, guys. You're going to blink and it's going to have been a year. We're not that far from March. Remember, February, February 2nd right now. We are, we're coming up on it quick. You've all, well, not all of you. Some of you are irresponsible. I've been, I've been responsible. So to my responsible people, you did it. We didn't beat the virus, but we managed to stay inside for almost a full year. Isn't that crazy? Think about it. Think about whether, if somebody had told you that going into this year, that you were going to spend a year plus locked in your house with the occasional ability in the summertime to go outside and, and enjoy some fresh air without getting a, a life-threatening virus. Before this whole thing happened, you would have been like, what are you talking about? 
I'm not staying in my apartment for a whole year. What am I, loser? Loser. The step is small, which is why it shouldn't really be so controversial to me. We're not opening up concert venues, you know? Zach Brown Band's not coming to town. I Personally, I wouldn't go and do that. But at this point, would I go have a drink at a restaurant that has 10 people in it and take my chances? I think I would. I think so. I think it's time. I'm tired of drinking by myself in my room. I'm tired of drinking with my roommates. I'm sick of them. Not you, Kyle. I know you're listening. All right. I've babbled for too long. This next piece coming up sort of piggybacks off the idea that I talk about with Kinsey later on in the episode, um, that this GameStop situation, it's a troll job. And as Americans, I think that we've, we love trolls. This is something that we, these are our people. Um, we really respect people that can say fuck you to the powers that be and laugh in their face. We always have. It's kind of the reason that Trump won. I lay that out in the next segment here, but there is a lot of truth to that. I, you know me, I'm not a Trump guy, but there is no denying that his people love the fact that he was trolling liberals. That was basically, it should have just been his campaign slogan. Trump 2020, make the libs cry. That was the whole game plan. I get it. But he's not the only one. We have a history of loving trolls, and that's what's coming up next. And then after that, Kinsey Grant. So this is the last time you'll hear from me. Do me a favor. Go to Apple Podcasts, leave a review. If you haven't done it already, it goes a long way. It helps other people find the show because it drives the algorithm. I don't have to explain this to you. You guys get it. It's very important stuff. Um, And some of you have DM'd me. Some of you have have, uh, left great reviews also. Thank you for that. But if if you're DMing me and you have a note, some people have had actual constructive notes. And they've DMed me on Instagram and said, we like this. We don't like this. Keep it that way. Please send me a DM. I'd rather do that. Don't put it on, on Apple Podcasts. Don't, don't air out our business for these strangers. You and I, we have a, a very special relationship here. DM me and tell me if you like what I'm doing. And if you don't, be nice about it. But you can tell me that too. All right, guys. So before I leave, also the other thing that I wanted to tell you, I'm, I'm coming through my promise to give you two episodes this week. This one is still later than it should have been, probably, because it's Tuesday night. But Gene Getman will be on on Thursday. So you'll get two episodes. Me and Gene are going to do our social villains on Thursday. So you guys get your fill of that. Our monthly meeting of the fucked up minds. So keep an eye out for that. There will probably be less production stuff on that. I think I'm just going to turn that around and, and put it out. But um, So you'll get another one this week. So... Hurry up! Listen to this one. Listen to it at like double the speed if you if you want, uh, and then get ready for the Thursday episode. That's gonna do it for the intro. I'll see you guys on the other side in eleven seconds. So Lindsey Graham says to me, please, please, whatever you can do. You know what I'm saying? I said, what's this guy? July 21st, the Queen's year, 2015. It's the very beginning of the race for the GOP nomination in the 2016 election. I'm in the studio of WABC Talk Radio 770, producing the Curtis and Kuby show. We're on air. And he gave me his number, and I found the card. I wrote the number down. I don't know if it's the right number. Let's try it. The show is just like any other show. 
until our news guy, Ken Duffy, runs into the control room in a frenzy. 202-228-0292. I don't know, maybe it's, you know, it's three, four years ago, so maybe it's an old number. 202-228-0292. Donald Trump just gave out Lindsey Graham's phone number on national television. I can't fucking believe this. As long as I live, I will never forget that day. So, I don't know, give it a shot. Well, I did have to look up the day, but I'll never forget the moment. That moment meant a lot. For starters, it was a clear preview of the chaos that was about to unfold over the next five years, with Trump running for office and then eventually winning the presidency. Pure, unprecedented unpredictability on a daily basis. You never knew what he was going to do, but if you worked in media, you knew you'd have some fun clips to play on the air the next day as long as you could keep up. It was also thought of as a shift in mindset regarding what was an acceptable admiration for a prominent American figure who was openly a tactile troll. But was it? What Donald Trump embodied was a runaway manifestation of the true spirit of the United States, which we try to pretend we're embarrassed by, but let's be serious. We don't have class. We love trolls. We always have. Until 2016, we had just never elected one president. American culture has never been about humility or gamesmanship. We're capitalists, baby. If you play the game with us, we're not only going to try to beat you, we're trying to be so loud and obnoxious about winning that your family is completely humiliated for generations. Our soul calls to us. Be a success. Taste the champagne. And then dance about it on TikTok. One of the many problems with capitalism is that there's a class system involved. And the people at the bottom of it are often there because they're afraid to step outside the lines and take a risk that will move them into a more comfortable tier. This isn't necessarily a business ideology, but also the idea that saying something wrong with the wrong tone might put you in a position to be poor forever and die of starvation. It's dangerous to swim against the current if you don't have a safety net. And that's why historically our pop culture is stacked with prominent figures who trolled the shit out of everyone for years. Trolling is counterculture. It's about proving that the powers that be aren't as smart as they think they are and trying to make them look as stupid as possible while you laugh in their face. Ha 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 ha. Fuck you, buddy. Think about it. Who do we love? Ben Franklin? America's farting grandpa? He's the country's first troll. In 1733, Franklin published a writing in Poor Richard's Almanac, predicting the date of death of his almanac rival, Titan Leeds. When Leeds did not, in fact, die on the predicted date, he published an article saying that he was still alive. So, Franklin responded with a follow-up, telling his readers that whoever is publishing work as Titan Leeds is an imposter, because the real Titan Leeds is dead. This is just one of a million myths about Ben, like how he discovered electricity by flying a kite in a thunderstorm, which historians say probably didn't happen. Ben Franklin's gravestone reads, the sage whom the world claimed as their own. But it should probably say, hey kid, pull my finger. How about Bob Dylan, troll master of the 1960s? On his rise to becoming a music and literary icon, he was bombarded by the press on a regular basis. But Dylan didn't like talking to the press. And anytime he was asked a question that he felt was a stupid one, he replied with a stupid answer. I wonder if you could tell me that among uh, folk singers, or if you are properly characterized as a folk singer, how many would you say could be characterized as protest singers today? Uh, how many? 
Yes. Are there many who do? Yeah, well, I, I think there's about uh, 136. You say about 136? Mm. Or do you mean exactly 136? Uh, it's either 136 or 142. This type of attitude inspired a generation of people to thumb their nose at the status quo, and when it was time for war in Vietnam, college kids pulled the ultimate troll job on the government by burning their draft cards in the street to avoid being sent to blow up shit in the jungle. Now, being on the receiving end of a brutal prank or trolling is never fun. I would know. I spent years working with my pseudo-comedy partner, Gene Getman, who used to fuck with me mercilessly. It was an absolute nightmare, like the time we were on the road in Massachusetts. We're hanging out in my hotel room before the show. When I was in the bathroom, Gene unlocked my patio door so he could sneak into my room once I was sound asleep. Then when I was passed out, Gene snuck in, threw a banana at my head, and I awoke to frantic goblin noises in total darkness. Here's a clip of that. Yes, of course he filmed it. Trump is proof that trolling's great, especially if the people being trolled are people that you dislike. In Trump's case, that was roughly half the population of the U.S., Hollywood, Hillary Clinton, John McCain, Black Lives Matter activists, the French, Mexicans, and also people from Central America who he assumed were Mexicans. Part of the problem with Trump is that there really was no power structure to keep him behaved. Clearly, being impeached twice didn't do much to slow him down. So what's the answer? For trolling to be regulated in a culture so toxic and petty, there has to be a system of checks and balances in place. For example, the unwritten rules of baseball. One of the reasons that ball players have historically been considered stoic and classy is because they have no choice. The game they play leaves no room for crass celebration. That sort of behavior is frowned upon mostly by the man on the mound, who can throw 95 miles an hour. You see, if a batter hits a big home run and shows up the pitcher, the unwritten rules say that the next time he steps up to the plate, the pitcher can throw a fucking baseball at his head. How's that for regulation? So you have two choices. Flip the bat and pay for it later. The one pitch. We inside it hit him. The Yatsa is hit by the pitch ball, and he is down on his back in the batter's box. I'm not sure exactly where it got him, but it might have gotten him in the helmet. And the trainer, Fred Hina, is out in Piazza having trouble opening his eyes. Or place the bat nicely on the ground and leave the stadium when the game is over, remembering the names of your children. No trolling here. Checks and balances. But sometimes... The trolls themselves are the regulation. When the balance of power is out of whack and the people holding all the cards can't be reasoned with, sometimes a team of renegades is what's necessary to seek proper retribution and reset the scales. And sometimes those renegades find each other on Reddit and are led by an adult man sitting in a video game chair wearing fake cat ears. Our forefathers stormed Boston Harbor. Our grandfathers stormed Normandy. And our contemporaries stormed the pantry looking for Oreos while their wives asked them why they spent the stimulus check on GameStop options during a pandemic. Have internet trolls finally made enough noise in the stock market to make hedge funds, who usually run wild and play by their own rules when it comes to the stock market, think twice about their cavalier tactics? Are the guys who drove up pointless retail stocks to undermine the rich and fuck with the financial sector folk heroes? I don't know the answer to that. And I don't know shit about money. But my next guest does. And I think it's time to hear from her. All right, we're back on Mike Coscarelli Rules. I love that you guys are still with me after four episodes. This is great. 
running out of time. Maybe five more left. <laughs> I'm talking out of my ass right now because I'm a little bit nervous. And the reason that I'm a little bit nervous is because uh, I'm about to talk about something that I am extremely bad with and extremely uneducated on. Uh, and my next guest uh, is very smart and knows a lot about this stuff. She's the host of Morning Brew's Business Casual podcast and author of the Business Casual newsletter. Kinsey Grant, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me, Mike. I am very thrilled to be here. Four episodes in and hopefully a million to go, not just five or more. <laughs> I guess we'll see how it plays out. Thank you so much for being here. I really do appreciate it. Obviously, we were talking before we started recording. Uh Please be gentle with me. I don't know anything about any of this stuff that's going on. I, obviously, like I'm a fan of yours. I listen to the podcast, and that's sort of where I try to get my education from. And I read the newsletter as often as I can. It's all such great stuff. It, you know, if you're one of my listeners, definitely go check both of those things out. But so the audience can get to know you a little bit if they're my people that might not know you. You're you're really young. You're 26, right? Yes, I am. Uh, okay. Reluctantly so. <laughs> Reluctantly 26. Would you rather be yes. older? I don't know. I think I would rather be like 23 forever. It was a oh, great age. Yeah, naturally. I mean, who wouldn't <laughs> want to be young and be able to make like crazy dumb person, mis young person mistakes all the time? Yeah. You know, um, I think I think the thing that has gotten me lately is I'm not getting carded anymore when I order a drink at a bar. That'll do it. And it's like really <laughs> getting yeah. at me in, in like a soulful way. But yeah, it, that, that's, that's for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely a moment that sticks out in your head is like, damn it, I think I'm starting to get old. Uh well, so being that you are as young as you are, you kind of aren't a traditional face of finance media. I'm assuming that you hear this a lot, but like you're a, you have a very refreshing take on this stuff because even if you listen to the podcast, the way you speak is young. You don't you don't it's not I don't get the vibe like you're you're extremely informed and you know what you're talking about, but I never get the vibe that you're trying to like be stuffy or be like a like an older person and I think you usually think of finance people as sort of like, you know, for lack of a better description, old white guys in suits like, you know. So you're different in that way. I I'm wondering what kind of expertise has got how did you get your expertise? Because to know all the stuff that you know at a young age I mean, are, are, do people are people receptive in your world to sort of your spin on this stuff? Clearly, they have to be. But I'm just <laughs> curious, like, how did you get to where you're at, at at such a young age and know all this information? Well, I would say, number one, a lot of luck. I've been very, very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time at mm. several points in my life. So that does not go unnoticed or underappreciated in my book. Um, luck is a huge part of it. But I'm also a firm believer in the harder you work, the luckier you get. So mm. You, you know, spreading out your your likelihood for having something good happen to you is a result of hard work. So that's kind of my like platitude that I'll give you before I kind of okay. get into the gritty of it. But <laughs> I appreciate that you said that that you know we approach this in a different way than most traditional financial media personalities might approach situations put in front of them, and that's by design. We at Business Casual and, and at Morning Brew more broadly, I would argue as well believe that finance news and finance financial analysis and and knowing what's going on in the stock market and understanding what a short squeeze is shouldn't just be for a certain kind of person. It shouldn't just be for an old white dude. It should be for right. everybody because business affects all of us. The economy affects all of us. The decisions that these powerful people are making affects all of us. So how come we can't all be empowered to understand what's going on? So that's the thinking that we brought into creating business casual. Um, and I think it's really been a, a useful guidepost for us and a North Star for us in a lot of ways, because why would I go in and pretend to be something I'm not? 
I'm 26. There's a lot I don't know. I read a lot. I write a lot. I Google a lot of things. I ask sure. a lot of questions. Yeah. But at the end of the day, there are just things that you can't get with experience. You can't get without experience, but like shouldn't prohibit you from asking good questions. Um, and that's been really, really important as we build the show. And as I get these crazy, powerful people on to, to interview them, like, what the hell am I going to ask Mark Cuban? But you figure it out because he's human. I'm human. Everybody has natural curiosity and allowing that to flourish has been a huge part of our success, I would argue. Um, now where I get my information in the first place, everywhere, I would say, um, I started my career working with those like stuffy old white dudes writing for them. I was covering the stock market for a company that Jim Cramer owns. Like it couldn't have gotten more buttoned up. Yeah. Um, My dad's favorite. Yeah. Like I just got (laughs) everybody's dad's favorite. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) When, when you're writing or creating something for somebody who's so far away from where you are in your life, eventually it gets really, really exhausting. And I got to that point suddenly this incredible opportunity where I could have accountability and be creative and speak the way that a 26 year old actually would speak came into my life. And it's been sick. Yeah. I mean that to, to, to just like to relate to you for a second, I used to actually produce Larry Kudlow's radio show. This was years ago at this point, cause he's been working for the president for a while, but I would have that same sort of feeling that I think you were having when you were working for Kramer, where it was like, I never really I didn't I think you seemingly must have soaked up more of the information because obviously, you know, you're you're in this this field of expertise now where when I was working for him, he would have so and so on. And then I would just I feel like it would go like in one ear and out the other. And because part of it was they were it just felt like this level of um, exclusivity that I just I couldn't relate to because they were, you know, the older stuffy guys. But I also at that time I was working in radio, I didn't really necessarily have an interest in the financial world at all. Have you always wanted to go down this road? Because I, I have to imagine you have some sort of like formal education in money or business or finance. Am I wrong? A formal education in money sounds great. <laughs> I cannot say that I've had one. Damn, um, that is very I surprising. Actually, yeah, thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. I, I had spent most of my young adult life, and by young adult, I mean the ages of like 15 to 21, okay. thinking, so very young adult, thinking young, that yeah. I would cover <laughs> politics. That was always going okay. to be my, my plan A. I wanted to be a political reporter. I wanted to, I was like the exact stereotype of wanting to be the next Christian Amanpour and like cover all these stories that were changing the world and like go beyond 60 Minutes Um, And that was my game plan. I was going to be a politics major. I was going to do journalism and I was going to move to D.C. I did that for a summer, moved to Washington, hated it. Absolutely hated it. Just was not happy there. Um, Couldn't really find my spot there. Got really disillusioned with covering politics in general. And at this point, I was still in college. So I still had the luxury of being able to completely change my mind. And that's exactly what I did. I had to take a business reporting class as part of my journalism major. And it really just kind of opened up this whole new world for me, where suddenly I got really excited by math, something that I had avoided my entire life at like any cost. I hated it. Um, And suddenly it became exciting. It became um, something I could digest and these numbers I could understand because I was seeing the human impact that they had. I was living in a small town in the middle of nowhere in Virginia when I went to school and um, seeing that 
even the decisions of the Fed could impact these people who live in a town of 7,000 people was really, really eye-opening to me. And and that was when I decided to become a business journalism major, which I guess is the closest <laughs> I've gotten to a, a money education, if you will. Um, and then I, you know, interned for Bloomberg and did the whole business thing and right. learned everything I could about the stock market and took a bunch of econ classes. Um, and it has kind of snowballed from there into this obsession now with covering this space. And I, I have kind of... <laughs> figured out that that what I'm doing, while it is certainly a specialty within the journalism space, I cover business and that's what I like to do. I have found that it is far more of a general interest than it is a specific space I cover. Um, business really does actually affect everybody. Like these stories sure. affect everybody. There's always a business angle. You just have to find it. Um, sometimes it's easier to find it than it is other times, but it's always there. And that's a, a comfort, but also a challenge. Yeah, well, I totally I get that. Since you have been in this world, have you been? Have there been things that have surprised you? Now that you're really you're an insider. I mean, realistically, it's you're a whiz kid. It sounds like, given like everything that you've just said, that you've been like <laughs> kind of thinking that you were going to be on a path similar to this since you were 15. Because that's amazing and impressive. <laughs> but since you've been involved in this world. Have there been things that surprise you or is it sort of what you were expecting it to be? Uh, it's been a, a decent mix of meeting and um, challenging my expectations. In a lot of ways, I have been able to experience um, some really, really cool firsthand stories of people and the human aspect of covering something as large. And um, you know, it's, it's a behemoth to be a business reporter. There's so much yeah. to cover. But um, at the same time, some of those expectations that I had going in have been reinforced by being in this industry. It really is an exclusive space. This is, um, you know, like business in general is the exact result of the decisions made by very few people, not very many people. Um, and that can be a little disconcerting now and then to recognize <laughs> that for so long, the thing that I have decided to devote my life to learning about and writing about and talking about um, is not for everybody. Just I, I can say that in the same breath of having said this affects all of us, but yeah. we're not all the ones who are making these decisions. And that can really, really suck. But like it is the old white dudes who are making the calls more so than I maybe expected going in. You hear that, but you don't really understand it until you sure. see it firsthand. And you're like, oh, my God, everybody looks the same. They all have the same accent. They all went to the same schools. Yeah. The F am I doing? <laughs> so you were expecting it to be a little more diverse. I had hoped it would be. And I say yeah. this as somebody who like, I have come from a place of privilege. Like I've always lived on the East coast. I went to a good school. I got an education and you go in thinking like, well, well maybe it won't be quite as bad. And then you're like, <laughs> it's exactly what they told me it would be. Right. Terrible. Everybody's right. the same. Ah, oh, man. Well, you brought up an interesting point, uh, saying that basically the, the people that you, th the people but I don't want to say be, I, I caught myself when I was about to say, it, but beneath these sort of like old white guys making decisions, it seems like last week finally got involved and tipped the scales a little bit and did something a little crazy. We're talking obviously about this. I, I'm just putting it in my notes as a GameStop fiasco because I don't really know what else to like, call it. What else it. are we going to call yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but I realized after this whole thing had happened and I tried to read about it or whatever, my um. I tried to explain it to my stupid roommate who was asking questions and clearly hadn't read anything about it. And I started trying to explain it to him and I realized that I also didn't know anything about it. I was like, you're an <laughs> idiot, man. Come on. How do you not know what's going on? And then I was like, well, this thing happened and then this guy did this. And I'm trying to like 
put it into words, I realized that I don't even really understand what happened. So somebody that covers this, can you just give us a recap of exactly what happened? Because I feel like it's something on the internet that everybody seems to be talking about and knows some of the buzzwords, but doesn't fully know the story. Yes, I will try. So all right. to begin, I think it's worth pointing out that this really is like the definition to me of a double-edged sword. It's so, so awesome that everybody mm. cares about what's going on in the stock market right now. People who have no idea what a short is or like what a, an options contract is are now trying to figure out what it is, is awesome. Like that is perfect. That's what yeah. we want to happen. But right. at the same time, it opens the door to this whole crisis of like miscommunication and, and misunderstanding that can be dangerous because people are playing with money. So um, I will give a, a brief rundown of what happened. Essentially, it was exactly that a fiasco. Um, there is this this Reddit subreddit called uh, Wall Street Bets. I had the founder, Jamie Rogozinski, on the podcast in March, which mm. was terrible timing considering how important <laughs> his role has become in the last couple of weeks. But um, this subreddit is is famous for people boasting about big bets that they're making in the stock market. Um, they're often retail investors, people who are just kind of day trading for fun. They don't usually come from a finance background and they boast about making these huge bets, these bets that are talking about like tons of money um, and often incredibly contrarian. So they try to find the patterns that institutional mm. investors or these big banks and hedge funds and, and what have you find the bets that they're making and figure out whatever the opposite is. They want to be different. They want to do something risky and risk is the currency that they, they deal in on this subreddit. So with that all in mind, there is a, a specific Reddit user called, um, am I allowed to curse on this show? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Deep fucking value. Okay. Um, and, and he essentially created this whole thing, like from essentially day one, he um, pointed out that this stock GameStop um, but now that they're calling GameStonk, <laughs> GameStop <Okay>. was incredibly <laughs> undervalued. So shares were trading at a price that this one Reddit user deemed to be unworthy of the fundamentals of the business, that it could trade for much more. Around this time, shares were, I think, roughly close to $20, not worth a whole lot. Mm. Um, and for obvious reasons, <laughs> GameStop yeah. is very much the antithesis of a modern business. It relies on in-person retail traffic. They've been kind of slow to adapt to e-commerce trends, but they had this new board member who was supposed to come in and change everything. He was from Chewy.com. He had a lot of retail background and e-com background. And so they thought this is the next big move for GameStop. This stock is undervalued. Hmm. Then this huge snowball effect happened. Um, the deep fucking value got everybody to buy in on GameStop. The share price soared. And at the same time, we realized that all these big hedge funds, so these big institutional investors who are dealing with scale that retail investors like you and I would never understand, hmm. were shorting this stock. Shorting it essentially means that they expect the price of this stock to go down. They're betting against the share price. When that share price does go down, shorts win. They get money. They make money off of that. So they're betting against the future of this stock price. When the stock price shoots up, something happens called a short squeeze. So mm. these shorts have to buy up more shares of the stock to cover their positions, which then in turn, of course, because of supply and demand, Drives. sends the share price even higher. Right. So this is exactly what happened with game with GameStop. Um, and this is what we have now come to identify as a meme stock. So these stocks <laughs> that are identified online as possible, um, you know, these, these possibilities where people can get behind them and the price will shoot up. And um, we can kind of like tell the rich people to go fuck themselves, like eat the rich kind <laughs> of attitude. And yeah, yeah. Um, that is exactly what happened. These hedge funds were losing 
so, so much money. And in the case of one uh, hedge fund, Melvin Capital, we're talking like three plus billion dollars lost because a bunch of retail investors decided to buy this stock. It got to the point where it was above $400 per share from $20 per share when all this started, which is absolute insanity. And now we have the conversation shifting from go buy, 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 buy. This is crazy to hold the line. I'm I'm sure people have seen that on the internet. Hold the line, hold the line. Don't sell yet. Don't sell yet. If you sell the rich win, like the hedge funders win, and we don't want that to happen. It's been this really, really weird kind of like revolution happening online. Yeah. And it's it's been cool to see that this is, I mean, cool from like the, the third party perspective um, of somebody who just likes to observe these things. It's been cool to see that there is power outside of these hedge funds. And this, I think, has been um, really illustrative of how the power has shifted in recent months and years. And um, I say this all kind of with a grain of salt, though, at the end of the day, hedge funders are really, really powerful still. The people who shorted GameStop are going to lose money, but at the end of the day, probably not lose everything um, because they have covered their asses in other ways. <laughs> this sure. is just one holding of what is a very, very um, diverse portfolio for most hedge funds. So while it is really incredible to watch and to see that people are banding together to like stick it to the man, I don't know how much staying power it has. And that is my long-winded explanation of what kind of happened with GameStop. I think that was perfect. I, I was I was trying so hard. I'm like listening. I don't know if you saw on the Zoom. I'm like my eyes are going up like, oh yeah, yeah okay, that makes sense. I got yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I think you kind of hinted at it a little bit, but as a professional, uh, somebody that has like an expertise in this field and, and works with or has context in this in this field, when you see this is happening, because I'm I'm assuming I, I didn't really know about this stuff until the at least at earliest the day after the market closed and and this was like a national story. But I imagine that on on your Slack or your whatever you're doing, there's a lot of messages going off like, do you see what the fuck is happening with GameStop, whatever? As you're seeing this unfold, what's going through your mind? Like, do you you have strong opinions on it? Or were you just like, this is insane? I would say having, having spent some time on Wall Street Bets when I was prepping to make an episode about it almost a year ago at this point, I didn't pay it much mind. This happens a lot. They are, um, you know, not not at this scale. This was in the early days. I was thinking this happens a lot. They identify these stocks, these like mega users who have tons of followers on Reddit will identify something. It'll go up for a little bit. It might catch wind on other parts of the internet, but usually it stays within that subreddit. What really kind of became the turning point for me with GameStop was when my parents asked me what was going on. And I was like, oh, like this yeah. is this is going to be big. This is going to be a big story when it has made its way to like what my parents would consider like that's the always the rule. Media, right? Yeah. Like, so if they're is, not famous, and so your parents know. Yeah, it was everywhere, and and I think that um, they these these subredditor these Wall Street betters or however we want to identify them have uh, shown that they can do it on more than just GameStop. We have AMC um, and other stocks that they've identified, um, like the price of silver, all of these different aspects of what we would call, quote unquote, the market have been kind of manipulated by small retail investors working at a large scale together. So we see that manipulation happening all the time from these big institutional investors who are like talking about billions of dollars in assets Mm -hmm. under management to see that it could happen with these smaller retail investors, where it's maybe like a 20 year old kid putting 150 bucks into GameStop shares. But if that happens at scale, it can actually move the needle pretty, pretty meaningfully has Mm -hmm. been like a crazy case study. I mean, I I saw a tweet today, like 
this is going to be a movie on Netflix. I'm sure this Easily. is going to be a bunch of podcast series, not even just episodes, but full yeah. series and books and, and all of this stuff. Like this was a paradigm shift. So then why, if you're saying that stuff like this does happen on the reg, because you're saying until your parents had said something to you, you were just like, well, whatever, this is like not necessarily uncommon. Why exactly was this one that much more, uh, have that much more weight? I think because it happened at such a massive scale that we're talking about um, like billions of dollars in, in market moves happening pretty instantly. Yeah. Um, and with, with such a, a quickness, I think that you often wouldn't see if you like tried to um, get like the masses involved in anything. Rarely can everybody agree that they're going to do something yeah. ever, but like for sure. For yeah. Reason, buying Even wear a mask or, think, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like we can't, yeah, exactly. We can't get people to wear a mask. We're like, yeah. no, go put some money in this completely ridiculous stock with a company well, that doesn't have any fundamentals that support this share price. Yeah, that's that's what we should do. Um, so, I mean, that I think was was pretty meaningful. Um, and also, we can't ignore the the context of all of this happening being okay. the pandemic. Like, oh, people, oh. yeah, like people are are bored, and then that's the honest truth. Interesting. I mean, we've been at this for a year. Um, people may not be able to like go to the office, or maybe they can't make the sports bets that they're used to making. Right. Um, maybe they can't go to sports games. I know that's a common um, comparison that's made that like we're taking our appetite for risk that we usually would would put out into the world in like a public facing way (laughs) and we're applying it to the stock market. And instead of saying, I'm going to go like hit on someone at the bar and take a risk, I might get shot down. We're saying, I'm going to go bet on this stock because (laughs) what the F else am I going to do? I don't have anything else going for me right now. Like I'm just going to take risk here because I can do it from home. Right. No one's going to stop me. Does the fact that it was too, because again, going back to my stupid roommate, the other night he was he was sitting in his room laughing and I was like what are you laughing at and he goes it's just so hilarious man like AMC the movies have been closed for an entire year and their stock just like tripled or whatever like he was understanding the context of how like does the fact that the stocks that went up to to this type of height the fact that they're just in essence, ridiculous given everything that's going on. Does that also, cause this is really a troll job in the, at the end of the day, isn't it? Yep. Or is, or are we yeah. just like, am I seeing that through a very like, um, elementary lens? No, it's, that's exactly what it is. Hedge so it funds was, are being trolled by people who are on Reddit. It's like an $8 billion troll job. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I could have explained it like that. That would have been so much more succinct. <laughs> but the details were so necessary because, I mean, this whole thing is just is absolutely it. It is hilarious, I guess. Like, I keep wondering if it's something that I should be like laughing at or like like afraid of, because the other aspect of this is that Robin Hood uh, at a certain point, I, I believe they still you still can't trade the stock. Right. Or you can trade it in small quantities. Yeah, they um, they they pause trading for a number of stocks on Robin Hood's platform. And the important part about the whole Robin Hood aspect of this conversation is that, number one, it's called Robin Hood for a reason. Their mm. whole premise is democratizing investing. They want to steal from the rich to give to the poor. Yeah. They have the ability on Robin Hood to sell people fractional shares. So let's say you want to buy a, a share of Apple. You don't have to buy all however much it's trading, like thousand plus dollars of a share right now. You can say, I want to put 20 bucks into this. Mm-hmm. You'll get a fraction of a share. And that's a way for people who might not have access to a ton of capital to get involved in the stock market, to invest, to build those compounding returns that we have preached for so long now. But for Robinhood to say, actually, you can't buy this right now because it's too volatile, really, really um, struck a chord with people. They were like, who's behind this decision? 
why is this out of like the middle of nowhere? It feels like you hit us, like you blindsided us because a lot of the traders who were investing in GameStop were people who were buying fractional shares. It was people who are investing on Robinhood or similar apps because they might not be able to to afford, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars of, you know, investment in the stock market right now. They're buying these smaller shares. They're buying at small prices. Um, And for Robinhood to say, actually, you can't right now felt like really, really visceral for a lot of people. Um, There were some pretty obvious reasons why Robinhood had to do it. I think this is more a crisis of communication than it Mm. is a crisis of like, should everyday people invest? But sure, um, that of course is not how the story shook out. But may I ask, because you were mentioning, you know, Robinhood trying to regulate volatility. Again, this is my ignorance. Do art does e trade or are all of these other um, places where you essentially, if you have more money, I, I assume that's what you're using to to trade stocks. At least, you know. Again, dumb, dumb brain. That's how I'm thinking about it. But do they regulate volatility going the other way? If it's if it's big time banks or hedge funds that are essentially sort of doing the same thing, because from my understanding of it, it does seem like the reason why this is also such a huge story is because it's like a hedge fund finally getting their asses burned in a big way by a bunch of idiots. Well, not idiots. I don't want to like, you know, uh, uh make fun of them because this is just a hilarious story but like regular people you know one of the first victories financially where like the the people you know finally beat a hedge fund and it just seems like that doesn't necessarily i know the sec there's insider trading it all gets very complicated but is does robin hood have that responsibility to regulate that volatility I, i just i'm truly ignorant to whether or not it works both ways, does it? Yeah. So so th- the reason I'll get into it a second that Robinhood had to pause trading is like basically to cover its own ass, which I can explain in a second. But mm. in terms of volatility, it's hard to over communicate just how huge the scale was of the investments that were happening in, um, in just, let's say, GameStop specifically. It was crazy the amount of money that was being put in. Um, the most exchanges on which these stocks are listed have certain things called circuit breakers. So if mm-hmm. a stock hits a certain you know, volatility level at which the the market starts to pay attention, they will pause trading on this stock on that exchange and say, let's give it 15 minutes, let everybody cool down, and then we'll go from there. Um, there are certain like circuit breaker levels that you can reach after like the last one and then she's like all right you're cut off for the day okay this is too intense this is too insane um and that's in an effort to preserve some sense of calmness in in the stock market because often we see these kind of um you know like chain effects of one stock moving and then if it's in this etf or if it's in the dow jones industrial average like there are um like effects that can happen to other shares down the line um and we don't necessarily want that to happen because typically a share a share price wouldn't move the way the gamestop has unless the company did something like if apple put out a terrible earnings report right like then maybe we could see why a share price would shift dramatically but for gamestop it was just like out of nowhere (laughs) it was something that people just decided to do um and there are really no fundamentals to back that price up with robin hood it it felt this responsibility to hit pause on trading for a second because and I say for a second for a while yeah. because essentially when the royal you buy, yeah <laughs> for, for several seconds <laughs> yeah. when you buy or sell anything on Robinhood it doesn't immediately happen it immediately happens on like your interface on what you're looking at on your phone screen but that trade isn't settled for usually about two days hmm. so Robinhood has a certain amount of money that it like can use that's liquid to cover these trades. 
suddenly it was facing this influx of orders that it wasn't sure it could cover because I mean, at the end of the, it's still like it's one platform, right? So it's used Robin by Hood is people. a Robin Hood's a loan shark. Uh, in a in a way, but it so is every exchange, I, right? Every I, I, I had no, but this is what I'm saying. I had no. I don't know if regular people know that. I had no <laughs> fucking idea that I didn't. I thought Robin Hood was just sort of the go between between the market, which I don't even really know. It, it's sort of like this uh, nebulous. Yeah. Does it ex- like what is it like theoretical? Um, uh, roulette table. You know, I didn't yeah. realize that the money had to be lended. For the for the transactions to be made. Right. And and Robinhood and other platforms, they don't even they have like somebody who executes their trades for them, who who makes sure that these actually happen. Oh, this man. is the platform that we trade on uh-huh. um, that people who use Robinhood that we trade on. Um, but they're not the actual ones who are like, yes, sign on the dotted Got line. <laughs> this trade happened and I can account for the money and here's where it came from and here's where it needs to go next. Mm-hmm. That's not their responsibility. So they had to pause to make sure that they could maintain responsibility over those executions of all these trades that were happening really, really quickly at a massive scale um, that really kind of like overwhelmed them in a way. Um, but I think the the interesting side of, sorry, something dropped. I think okay. the interesting side of this story is that suddenly this story wasn't about GameStop anymore. It was about Robin Hood having been loyal to the suits, not right. to the everyday people. Um, people were saying that Robin Hood was being bought by these hedge funds, that these hedge funds were like, if you stop trading so that we stop losing money, we'll make sure that your next funding round is incredible. We'll help you with your potential upcoming IPO. Um, right. We had people who were saying that this was like the work of the government, saying that Robin Hood couldn't let trades happen on its platform, um, which is all like not... I don't know. I, I I can't make the call. I haven't interviewed Robin Hood CEO, but yeah. I do think that they lost a, a pretty meaningful opportunity to reclaim that narrative and to be open about it because a lot of other platforms also had to pause trading on these on these shares, but they were just a lot more communicative about why and when people could expect their their money to be you know <laughs> their chips right. to be back on the table again, like theoretically. Um, but Robin Hood just didn't do a great job of that. All right, and I guess if you're Robin Hood and your mission statement in a way is sort of like empowering the people, that is sort of a damning PR um, narrative to have out there. Because I, I truly thought that that's what it was, too. I was sitting here, I was like prepping for this interview, and I was like, how dare Robin Hood mess with the people? The people. Yeah. Unbelievable. But now, I, I don't think that, I really don't think that, I'll, maybe I'm just like... You know, but I, I really don't think that that's common knowledge that Robinhood is like lending the money and, and needs to and not just Robinhood, but all of these these traders have to um, uh, actually make sure that they have enough capital to, to make this thing go that. Yeah, it's this almost is why like we a, need you, a run Kenzie. on the banks. You know? like, <laughs> yeah, right. This is, this is what happens. You have to make sure like while all of this does feel really theoretical and like all of it is made up money and like nothing matters and there are no rules. This, there actually are like somewhere there is like a, a piece of paper that keeps track of all of the shares of GameStop and like what they're worth at, at all times and who owns them. Right. Um, and we, we lose track of that sometimes because we're like instant gratification, right. a highly digital world. But at the end of the day, like the, the actual mechanics are still pretty basic, like the ways that they work and the ways that people take money and use it and then deploy it in a different way and then borrow it from someone and then expect to get it back. There's a lot of moving parts, but they're all pretty basic. 
Understood. All right. Well, you've done an excellent job of explaining that. Um, so you had mentioned the narrative sort of getting away from Robin Hood there and, and how other traders have really had to do the same thing, but communicated it better. And it seems like the I, I don't want to like blame the uh, this uh, Internet troll, uh, again, nebulous, like one type of person, you know, mob mentality. But um with that narrative getting away from Robin Hood, and obviously a lot of heat came on, came down on them for for all that stuff because that's what became the the narrative in the news. Do you think that the internet trolls in the financial sector are finally getting like a a real voice? Are people on Wall Street actually afraid of something like this happening again, or just the idea that this could be they they may might perhaps be losing control of something that they kind of had a system for in the past? My hope is, yes, this will open the eyes of the institutional traders to the power of the everyman, Mm -hmm. um, like to the power of the retail investor when these retail investors band together and say, like, we're coming after you, Steve Cohen, they can actually make good on it is pretty pretty cool like that's awesome for somebody who is like not one of these powerful people um, to see that that's possible is awesome. I do, though, have my doubts about whether or not this can be replicated. like to the earlier point about the times in which we're living right now, mm. the word of 2020 was unprecedented for a reason. Like Fair, these, yeah. these circumstances are difficult to replicate and nobody would want to replicate them. So I'm not sure in the future in like the post COVID world, mm-hmm. will this happen again? I'm not totally sure. And, and I still think that we're, you know, right now as we're recording this, it's still very much like a hold the line kind of a mentality with GameStop. Mm-hmm. I don't think the story is over by a long shot, which is, crazy and exhausting but I, for you um, i bet yeah <laughs> yeah yeah but i mean i i i think they've paid attention these institutional investors have paid attention maybe more so than they usually would but they have a lot of ways and a lot of um capital behind covering their asses in other ways you know the the GameStop short is one of many many investments that these hedge funds are making mm. uh, and not all of them are making it like where one hedge fund might lose three billion dollars another is making three billion dollars elsewhere and just not sure. getting the same attention so the story is not over but um who knows <laughs> do you think that there might be regulations that come after this in any capacity um no Okay. I think. <laughs> um, and I say okay. that with like a little bit exasperated, like uh-huh. to to face a situation in which the likes of like Elizabeth Warren and Ted Cruz are kind of in agreement that like this is a little fucked up and maybe we should look into it yeah. is crazy. Finally, we can be united on one thing. But yeah. um, regulation is slow and regulation fails to recognize like how fast we as the people being regulated move. Hmm. So while this might be the story of the week right now and it might story of the month, who knows story of the season by sure. the time regulation is actually passed down, I have my doubts whether or not it will actually do anything. Um, and and that's just like a, a symptom of our you know bureaucratic functions of, of the United States. And like, we can get into that, but um, <laughs> it's not easy to, to make regulation happen. Um, and also the people who are actually making the decisions like in the room don't want it. They don't want it. For sure. Yeah, I, I would imagine that. I, I think that the only reason that there would be any sort of motivation was because, you know, a couple of hedge funds got burned. But if you're saying that this is something that is happening pretty much on the regular, then I guess it doesn't, this isn't as earth shattering as I think that a lot of people seem to think it was. Am I right about that? Like, it just seems more like it's like the story is just juicy and funny and silly. And I think that 
the thing is like manipulation has always happened. The markets are inherently capable of being manipulated. Yeah. It's just who's doing the manipulation that is so interesting about this story. It's usually these bigger institutional investors who are deciding what happens. And now it's not them. They're the victim right. of a system that has long made the the little guy the victim, the everyman the victim. Um, and now there's been this role reversal and it's uncomfortable and it's weird and it's fun for us to watch as sure. members of this little man community. But um, yeah, I, I think that's the, the story is that it's who's doing the manipulation mm-hmm. um, instead of that it's even happening. It's always going to happen. Got it. Well, that's the GameStop fiasco in a nutshell for you folks. I have a couple couple Bitcoin questions because there's another thing. Bitcoin, obviously, um, everybody has a friend who has a little bit of Bitcoin. Uh, they're usually, you know, conspiracy theorists. Um, my friend Mike is the one that that tried to get all of us into crypto. He's like, dude, come on, this is the wave of the. Fu-. It was like two years ago. We all lost money. None of us knew what the fuck we were doing. But obviously, Bitcoin is back. Um, why is it back? How did it come back? Oh, it's a great question. Um, <laughs> how long do you have? I think plenty of time, Kinsey. How long do you have? <laughs> I think if I had to uh, boil it down, it would be another one of these like read the room, um, unprecedented kind of times where mm-hmm. things that we would never expect to happen are happening pretty regularly, and we have to come to terms with that. Um, and and part of doing that is investing in other things like Bitcoin mm. and. The the big argument for Bitcoin bulls right now is that it's an inflation hedge. So we have the government spending huge amounts of money in stimulus. And and I have argued openly, like necessary stimulus. Two trillion dollars was nothing. Like we mm. we all got our like Donnie T bucks, right? And then <laughs> and then what happened? And then a year later we're still in this situation. The yeah. government needs to step in. We need to we need to help people. But when you do print that much money, Inflation is a a kind of necessary evil that follows. And a lot of people are concerned about the purchasing power of the dollar and the ability of the federal government to step in and say, what are we going to do about the purchasing power of the dollar after we passed all this stimulus and people got all this money? Mm. How can we fix it? Um, And the question is, can they at all? So that is why people right now, at least the loudest voices in the room, have been pro Bitcoin and pro crypto because it is an inflation hedge. There's a finite amount of Bitcoin that can be mined in the whole world. Um, and that lends itself to a little bit more stable purchasing power. Stability is not often a word used when talking about Bitcoin, but at least in terms of purchasing power, we're pretty sure that, you know, there's only so many places it can go. Mm-hmm. Okay. Are you bullish on cryptos in, in general? So Even if it's not specifically Bitcoin. Advice, but I will say, you know, and and I don't give investment advice, not because my employer has like deemed it irresponsible or anything, okay. but just because like I'm I am twenty-six years old, like we were talking about. Like I, what the fuck do I know? But uh, a lot. <laughs> I do think that the I, I'm more bullish on decentralized finance in general, okay. um, which essentially is just like when we think about central banks, that's the epitome of centralized finance, um, that the Fed chairman, Jerome Powell, can make all these decisions and tell you what interest rates you're going to pay. Um, and who knows how he's being influenced? Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's a that's a big question mark for me. The system has certainly worked well enough for long enough, but the, uh, the pros of decentralized finance seem to kind of outweigh the pros of more centralized finance. So 
nobody really owns the future of Bitcoin. This was written in a way that can't really be manipulated. Um, and I, I find that pretty compelling. So I'm, I'm bullish on, as they call it, DeFi, but um, I don't know about these individual cryptos themselves. There's just so many of them that it's hard right. to, so to Do- figure out. Dogecoin, which is the, yeah. the dog crypto, uh, had a big spike the other day. Uh, I, Unbelievable. I, so I was telling you about my just now my friend Mike and uh, our friend Julian. Julian works for the MTA. Uh, <laughs> these were the guys who were like, dude, you got to get into crypto. Uh, I drive yeah. the train around the city. I, I know. All right. I'm a finance guy. Um, so we obviously everybody and you know all my roommates, all my friends, we are all just like we kind of let Julian and Mike become our like financial advisors for maybe a four month period of our lives in 2000. 18, whatever. Uh, and obviously we all lost whatever we put in, which was not much money. Let's be serious. But, um, with that bubble bursting and now it's come back, what's to stop it from bursting again? Is there anything? No. I mean, the the nature of a bubble is that it's going to pop at some point. Um, and you have to be prepared for that. Oftentimes we can't recognize a bubble until after it has burst, which is unfortunate and usually leaves a lot of people, unhappy for, for many reasons. But mm-hmm. um, I, I wonder if Bitcoin itself actually is a bubble. You know, we we heard that word a lot, especially in 2017. We had this first major price run up to like $20,000 was the top for Bitcoin. Every I was covering then. I was like, what the F? Like, yeah, there's no way that this can support these prices. It, there's just no way. Mm-hmm. And now this last year, it topped $40,000. <laughs> and insane. it depends on who you ask. They could go to five hundred thousand um, dollars. I'm not necessarily sure. Like, at, at what point can we say that these individual spikes in value and like the price of Bitcoin, and then it'll come back down to earth, and then it'll it'll kind of chug along, chug along, chug along, spike way back up, and then come down, and then it's it's chugging along a little higher than it did the last time. I don't know if they're necessarily bubbles. I think um, the inherent value is there for me. I know a lot of people say it's not because it's not something you can hold, but like. Right can you hold the dollars in your savings account? I can't. Good point. <laughs> I don't yeah. have a safety deposit box, so I can't. <laughs> um, it's, it just is like, has kind of sent me on this like meta journey through how we assign value to things. Yeah. Which yeah. Is, is crazy. Like someone decides it's valuable and we listen to them. Um, why can't we listen to the people who say that Bitcoin is valuable? Yeah. I mean, makes sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. Last thing, uh, and then I'll let you get out of here because I know you're a busy lady, you got stuff to do. And uh, I know that you said you don't give investment advice, but I'm going to ask you to give investment advice. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, I have a little game. It's a quick rapid fire game. It's called Buy, Sell, or Come On. Uh, Come on. Okay. It's, they're general, so they're not like specific stocks or anything like that. They're more trends um, that you might be seeing or, you know, um, that something you might have a gut instinct about. Buy obviously means you buy more of the stock, sell means. You sell more of the stop, stock, come on, means what are you thinking, dude? Like avoid it at all costs. Now, this is an interesting time because given everything that just happened with GameStop and Amazon, like I didn't know that GameStop, which seems to be closing on every city block in New York City, would ever have some sort of um, resurgence the way it did. So maybe there's a surprise in store that I don't know about. And that's why I'm asking you about it. All right. So, you know, you understand the rules buy, sell or but if you say come on, it's got to be come on. Got to say it that way. Okay. All right. Food industry stocks buy, sell or come on. 
can I ask a follow-up question? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Do we have like a specific part of the food industry? Um, because I, like, I I didn't think that far ahead. <laughs> sorry, I'm a reporter. Let's um, all right. Let's make it specific. Let's say, let's say, um, like a uh, a food supplier, like U.S. Foods. I know they they send food out. People buy, I guess, in bulk from them. I think that's right. I think that's right. I don't actually know. Yeah. Um. Sell. Sell. Okay. Uh, retail stocks. Um, buy. Okay. Energy stocks. Clean energy or traditional energy? Let's say clean. Buy, buy, buy. Buy, buy, buy. Wow. Three. Uh, real estate stocks. Come on. Really? Our first yeah. come on. Yeah. Uh, okay. Is there a reason? Uh, do you want to go back to an office? (laughs) All right. Fair point. Uh, e-gaming stocks. Buy. Buy. Okay. Travel stocks. Sell. Sell. Damn. Yeah. All right. That's the end of the game. Short list. Oh gosh, that was was (laughs) nerve-wracking. You did a great job. Kinsey Grant, you are a star. This, I mean, this could not have gone better. You were so good. <laughs> I you. feel informed now, and I clearly was not before we uh, had this conversation. Well, um, they were great questions for somebody who says they were uninformed. I appreciate it. That was, that was really fun. <laughs> great. I'm glad you had a good time. Uh, where can people find you? What do you want to promote? What, what do you want people to hear, see, listen to, read? So the podcast I host is called Business Casual. Uh, You can search for that on any listening platform. I am a big Twitter user. So Mm. find me on Twitter at Kinsey Grant. Um, And if you want to subscribe to the newsletter that we're talking about, I I write it goes out every Sunday. Uh, Go to it's businesscasual.fm slash sign up. And I highly recommend it. It's in my news box every Sunday night. I love reading it. Uh, Kenzie Grant, you've been awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right, guys, I will see you guys on Thursday. I got Gene Getman coming back for another uh, Social Villains episode. So until then, goodbye. Mike Coscarelli Rules is hosted by Mike Coscarelli. Executive producer, Mike Coscarelli. Supervising producer, Mike Coscarelli. Edited by Mike Coscarelli. Sound design by Mike Coscarelli. Podcast and social artwork by Chris Cheney. Special thanks to all the losers and the haters.